WHIVLP New Orleans 102.3. This show is Good Morning Comrade. You can check us out every Tuesday at 8 o'clock on Tuesdays, 102.3 FM. Uh, today we have a very special two guests. Uh, we have a lot of... Te- this is like my dream show because I have like teachers and organizers on the show at the same time. And I've got I've also like roped Scott and Aaron and Robert all into like having to listen to it happen. So this is perfect for me. Uh, so we have Jeff Scott and um, Aaron and Robert on the show, the usual crew. We also have Anne Marie Coviello, who is an educator uh, in Jefferson Parish. Say hello to everybody, Mar- Anne Marie. And we also have educate uh, organizer uh, and educator uh, from Arizona, uh, Rebecca Grelli. She is a core organizer of. Arizona Educators United, and also National Educators United. What's going on, Rebecca? Happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah. So um, I guess I just wanted to sort of talk about uh, what is going on specifically for educators and what are we seeing happen kind of in the world right now, uh, specifically looking at the questions of returning to school in the midst of COVID and what can educators do to sort of advocate for themselves. Uh, maybe we could start with uh, Rebecca and we can kind of kick it to Emory from there. Well, I mean, we're six months in, right? And uh, that means we've been organizing for six months. <laughs> so <laughs> right. um, it looks a little bit different now because we had, you know, originally... Uh, organized around getting schools to close since we were one of the last states to actually do that. So um, that was actually kind of a good thing for organizing, though, because it got us back in our saddles, so to speak, put our shoes back on, boots on the ground, kind of started, you know, sparking the fires again. And so, I mean, in terms of what are we up against, um, how much time do we have? <laughs> oh, we have seriously. We, we have the whole show and like we want to hear all of it. Um, so, I mean, anywhere from, you know, with, and you, you think of Arizona, I'll just put my Arizona hat on for a second. Mm-hmm. We were one of the first ones back in the nation, right? Literally, the pressure was on for us to organize and come out with a shore of force against, a, you know, a unsafe reopening. And so, you know, we organized, had escalating actions in July, really to gain awareness, bring out the message that, like, we are very concerned about the... the aerosolized transmission of COVID and being in tiny spaces with 30 plus kids, especially in Arizona where you have no windows and no way to actually open a window because this is the desert (laughs) and buildings aren't built that way with those materials. And so we, you know, it was really about getting the message out that like, we are not, we, we need to have some ducks in a row. We need to have some things in order, some conditions that we deserve before even considering going back. And so really it was a push for virtual learning like most places in the US, right? Because that's what's safe. We will not return unless it's safe. So that's when only when it's safe started happening, that hashtag organized motor marches just to gain awareness. We grabbed you know national attention, local attention. Um, we shared our toolkits with people across the nation to just really start with just saying, we deserve to be online for at least like the first quarter, right? Like the first nine online, like, let's just call it, stop with this, like, oh, let's see what the data says. Oh, let's push it a week. Oh, let's push it two more weeks. Like, no, families deserve to actually have a plan and be communicated so we all know what's happening. And instead of actually investing the time and energy into figuring out how to make remote distance emergency learning work, we just kept wishing for a dream that was never gonna realize with this data. So I'll stop and I'll, I'll I'll hand it over to my friend. Anne Marie, what have you seen? Uh, what have been working on? Uh, what have we been working on together uh, in in Orleans and Jefferson and all around? Well, it's we're we're exactly what Rebecca just described. It was the the push was uh, one week more, and you know, probably partly because 
Louisiana and sat out Red Fred, you know, like we really, for the most part, just people, it was so funny because like the New York Times was like, Louisiana is predicted to be next. And Jeff and I are looking at each other like, who are they talking to? Because we knew there was, <laughs> there was not, we were, Jeff was the one who like totally hit me and like got me on like before it was so fashionably popular, you know, the Facebook calls or the live Facebook live and FaceTime with, um, Red for Ed in West Virginia. And we were just kind of like, God, we're standing in awe. And then we're trying to pump our union leaders up. And when that was really a crystallizing moment for Jeff and I and realizing like, we can't wait for them. We can't wait for our union. Ain't nobody going to organize but us, right? Yeah. We, we are, we, as Jeff always says, we are the union. So let's organize ourselves. And we, in in a way, it was really inspiring because we were sort of having that, like you know, a little bit of like envy of everybody else was getting to like really put it, the pedal to the metal, and we're like, oh, Louisiana. But this summer, then you know, we were ready, and the first piece was like, we were like, where's our union on Black Lives Matter? And our union, which has majority black leadership, was like sleeping on it. And we're and Jeff and I were like, let's start pushing them because this is just the beginning. Like in Black Lives Matter and our, our in the school in the return to school are like have turned into, in some ways, you know, tra- the, the train is running on the same track. You know, whereas like how much more can people take? And I'm not comparing what teachers are going through to the brutality of people being murdered by the police, but it's another aspect of the way our students' are, lives are being disregarded and our community lives are being disregarded. And, and there's a sense of like, okay, we're not comfortable with any of it. So let's, let's organize. And, you know, in Jefferson, we, we did that. It was a very small core group and we started having rallies and we got some really, I'm not trying to take away from anything we did. I'm super proud of us, but they were minimal wins. They were minimal wins. So now we're in that chaos you just described, which is like, what does the data say? How do you do virtual? I mean, like they so were ready because they were just counting on it's a red state and they were counting on this rhetoric. And then I don't think people really, be, I don't know what people really believe because I'm not a mind reader, but I think that everybody who holds the real power in our state wanted to show their fealty to their overlord and prove that you know, we're talking about the reddest people in the world. Like Stephen Scalise is, you know, the rep of the place where Jeff and I live and work. That guy Stephen sucks. Scalise, yeah, he's just unimaginable. It's the person. Clay Higgins also in three. Yeah, I mean, there's so many people that wanted to prove that like, oh, it's just going to go away. We believe what Trump is saying. And so we were up against all of that in Jefferson. But, you know, and we still are because they weren't ready for virtual. So like. Online in nine is like a great, I love it. It's a great slogan, but like there was no way that was going to happen because they couldn't make it happen. They still can't make it happen. Virtual is a joke. They have no idea what they're doing. They're making teachers teach online and in virtually online and in person at the same time. That's, that was what they came up with. Mm-hmm. So it's a huge labor issue because people are basically a good, I'd say 50% of teachers in Jefferson Parish are having to work two jobs now. And I got cut off at the, the board meeting where I was about to talk, start talking about hazard pay. And I'm like, they're so glad they didn't give me three minutes mm-hmm. more. You, did you see it, Jeff? Oh, I watched that whole thing. That was amazing. You did great. I was like, give me three more minutes because we, you know. They, they, yeah. Just to know. talk about, just to sort of like, like, just to bring it back a little bit of context. Uh, in the middle of the uh, public comment of the last board meeting, which happened in August, the uh, uh, Jefferson Parish School Board adjourned in the midst of, uh, in the middle of a lot of the uh, commentary because a young man, you know, provided some commentary that was not deemed appropriate, and they essentially had him like walked out by police, and they adjourned it right after that meeting because there was a lot of uh, pushback for it. It was one of these really uh, wild uh, scenes that uh, I'm actually... So it it did get like... You know how news cycles like last for like five minutes now? Like this is one of those things that, that hit national news, but it didn't really mean anything because nothing means anything because so much stuff is happening simultaneously. <laughs> but it was a big... It was a pretty big deal. 
And the good part of it was we did wind up like taking over the room and chanting, chanting Black Lives Matter in the Jefferson Parish School Board meeting room, which was... They scattered like flies, like, they, like, like roaches when you turn the light on. <laughs> they, yeah, the first time an, a young black man raises his voice to you, you start your white girl tears and run out of the room. It was stunning. It was stunning. So I brought it up when I spoke this last week and was like, can I have three extra minutes? Because I wanted to get to hazard pay, but I knew I had to like lay this whole foundation to get there. But they'll hear from me again. I believe that that's you know. But again, we're 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 pushing back in a way that's you know, we're really hobbled. We're hobbled because of our union is not taking responsibility. We're hobbled because we are in this you know decades long erosion of teachers' rights in Louisiana. I mean, 15 years of the charterization of Orleans, which is next door to Jefferson. Jefferson's drooling over it. They want to do what they want. Whatever Orleans has, they want, no matter how bad Orleans destroys their schools and destroys the education of black and brown children. That's what Jefferson wants to emulate. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen, but that's Jefferson. To be fair, so when we're talking about the charterization for people who are listening who are not from the New Orleans area, New Orleans schools are not better than any of the surrounding area schools are, you know, we go by a a letter grade system. I think the majority of the charter schools like get C or D. I don't think we had very many A level schools. And I mean, we've talked about how standard standardized testing is like not a great metric and all of that. But when we are looking at kind of the metrics they use for like even by their own standard, right? Yeah, the charter schools are not better. So like I, I think that is a, uh, an argument that gets used a lot when it comes to like, oh, we want to make sure parents have choice that they can send their kids to a good school. And like, you know, when only a couple of the schools in the city are like the quote unquote A schools and you're having to fight to get your kid into a B or C school, like, you know, it's it's not really like a model we want to emulate. And then like, also, so I was thinking, what are the like, what are the arguments I've seen that seems to have taken the most hold when it comes to... Um, kind of talking about the in-person versus virtual learning is that um, teachers have spent so much time fighting against the in-person learning for this year that they did not give themselves enough time to plan for the virtual learning. I've seen that argument made kind of many, many places. They made us do it. Like like multiple, you know, multiple political sides of the spectrum, I think have been making that argument. So I was wondering if you all as educators could speak to that and you know, what your feelings and, and what your thoughts are on, on that argument. For sure. Um, we are not to blame, first of all. We don't make the policy, do we? <laughs> Where does it stem from, right? So people that say that are either one of two things, completely ignorant or know what they're saying for an intentional purpose, right? Those are the only two options. You either are dumb as hell, you have no idea what's happening, or you're saying things to make us look bad and turn people against us. And so what we do know is that, for example, in Arizona, the governor is the one who makes those decisions, right? Even though we're local control, which means he gets to pawn all the responsibility off onto the districts and goes, it wasn't me, hands off, it's them. So punt, punt, punt. That's what happened with every single thing regarding COVID. That is why people were scrambling all summer. And quite frankly, that was intentional, is every two weeks we had to reevaluate our plan. We got a plan? Okay, we're rolling. Okay, great. Parents know we're good. All right, great. Parents love us? Great. We're happy. Go. Then you change it up. Oh, no, we got to do that. Okay, then it changes, and then it changes, and then there's no freaking metrics for anybody to actually say what is safe. Everybody, I, ha- I can't tell you as a parent how many surveys I had to take to say when only it's safe, and I go, well, what does safe mean? Yeah, right? 100%. I have three kids. I have three tiny kids under the age of six. Like, you want me to take a survey based on nothing? I don't even know what you mean. It's I'm based on your feels. It's uh, Do you feel right. like it's safe? There's no actual definition of what safe is, right? Look, right. Wh- what's the vibe like, guys? Yeah, well, how's the vibe check uh, on right. safe? <laughs> and then our governor threw a dart at a calendar and said, I- I'm going to pick August 17th. That's going to be the day. Sounds and like so a good we're day. like, what? What? Right. Random day. Let's pick August 17th. We're going to shoot for that, even though at that point in time, Arizona was literally in the middle of the spike. Yeah. We all knew. Yeah, y'all hit it later than us. Yeah. 
So honestly, it's not the teacher's fault. Quit trying to blame us for everything. We are not society's garbage can anymore. We are done with the demoralization. It's not us. It is our elected officials, our mm -hmm. decision makers, our lawmakers who are intentionally doing this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It's also really important to point out so much of what's on my mind right now about school worker justice is that uh, it was summer. We don't actually work in the summer and the unpaid forced professional development is another aspect of this whole story, which is there is no limit on what they ask teachers to do. If teachers want mm -hmm. to spend their summer organizing, that is exactly what they should do because we don't work in the summer. We work 10 months and we're paid for 10 months. So if you want my time in the summer, there better be a stipend. And this whole thing has been unpaid work the whole way. We are talking to teachers, people we know who are, you know, the red for Ed, 110%, where like, I can't organize anymore. I'm working 18 hour days. And, you know, it is a really big piece of talking about what does it mean for teachers to be workers? Because no other worker, I can't think of any, and please help me think of some if there's a comparable thing, because I think about this all the time. No other worker is asked to work for free to the degree that school teachers are, pre-K through 12. And it is not acceptable. It's one of the conversations we have to start having and this pandemic hopefully will usher in an era in which people will start to say, we are not working for free anymore. You are listening to WHIV LP New Orleans 102.3. This is Good Morning Comrade. Good Morning Comrade dot com uh you can listen to us uh whivfm.org slash listen i want to pull on that particular thread uh on the education workers and the sort of like the, the, the sort of terms sort of like like care work or like pink collar work that's sort of um associated with education that i've i've been brought aware of in my time in as, as education as, a, as an educator myself rather and 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 sort of the expectations that go along with that kind of work and maybe sort of like pick, you know, maybe it sounded like Anne Marie, you had a thought on this to start with. Um, and Aaron, you're a social worker. So, so you definitely have some thoughts on this, I'm sure as well, uh, to sort of like, like bounce this idea off of one another, just, just in, in, in terms of the, you know, like what, why, what are the expectations of people who do this kind of care work and how do you organize in that kind of a setting? Uh, if you want to start us off, Anne-Marie. I'm really interested to hear what Aaron and Rebecca have to say, and, and Scott and Jeff, of course, as well. Um, you know, I think about, like I said, I think about this all the time because I think it's such a complex, multi-layered thing because teachers really, in some ways, have like three levels of response, people they feel responsible to. So, you know, you can compare a principal to management. That one's easy. But like, who are the teachers and students? to a teacher, you know, I mean, the, uh, the parents and, and students to a teacher. I feel like, you know, when I was a young teacher, I really didn't care at all about my principal. I was in Orleans, in the old Orleans, uh, with a very strong union, the United Teachers of New Orleans. And- uh, Hell of a union. It was a hell of a union. There were a hell of a lot of problems, but as Aaron pointed out, there is mu much maligned, much misunderstood uh, problems in the schools before Katrina. And then- yeah. Those problems, such as they were, were used and overblown and overhyped to privatize our schools. But speaking of that time in my life as a worker, I really didn't, I, I didn't have issues with management. I didn't have, I worked for principals who supported me for the most part. I found a school where I had that. And that was more the norm in Orleans under Utno than it was the exception. So I was, you know, really... I worked for my students in my early part of my career. I wanted them to learn. I wanted them to be happy. And I did. I saw myself, perhaps mistakenly, as a white collar worker. I thought I was like, you know, like my friends who had gone to law school. I went to graduate school in education and, and it wasn't making a lot of money, not like my friends who are lawyers, but I was like, I'm a professional. Professionals do what they have to do to work. I answer to my students. 
And that felt all like, you know, it was basically kind of made sense to me at that time. But then, you know, one day you like look up over your little hole you've been in trying to learn how to be a teacher in an inner city environment. And you're like, wait, like, I have rights. And then Katrina happened and it was like, oh, wait a minute. This is really bad when they take the union away. This is charters, you know, it was like. Woo! The principals were like, "We're free. We can mess over teachers." And the charters—they own you, basically, right? Yeah. So then, all of a sudden, it really became clear to me. I'm mean, like, I always knew I should be in a union. I always cared about my union. I was the building rep at my school for six years. But you know, all of a sudden, I was like, "Oh, I'm a worker." Oh, weird. And you know, I mean, I was a strong union person who grew up in a strong union family, but I didn't really get it. So now I'm really asking those questions, like, who do I really work for? And then there's the whole third layer, which is the team you work for. Your other teachers, you know, like this has been so much a part of the pandemic conversation, which is like, okay, I'm sick and I stay home. Then that means if I'm a classroom teacher, my kids go over to somebody else because you sure can't get subs. So now I'm going to put 40 kids in somebody else's class if I'm legit sick or think I might be. I mean, these are really interesting questions when we talk about teachers and was workers. So I'd love to hear what other people. Rebecca, what do you think? Well, almost between 70 and 80% of us are women. Um, it's been predominantly a female profession since its inception. And quite frankly, we are martyrs. This martyrdom really needs to end. Um, I was on a call with Nicole McCormick from West Virginia the other day, and she was asked the same question. And she reminded me that we are not the Disney princess sort of martyr kind of mentality of just saying, you know, all oh, the teachers will do it. They'll care for their kids. We can keep pushing them. We can lay, add another thing to their plate and keep going because they'll do it for the kids. And so what's been really great about this uprising and this sort of wave of red for red is that that feminist mentality, that sort of ingrained idea that like we are the care workers and you know what, that actually gives us power because we do care and we're positioned so nicely in our communities in order to really make a difference and connect to the communities that organizing for us is actually an easy route, right? To make change. We just have to bring others with us and make them realize that, but you get the gist. Yeah. And, and, and we know it's really interesting too. And we can kick to Aaron in a second, cause I would like to hear what she says on, on her perspective, but like you sort of get to see where those limits are of how far they can push us and how far we can go. And you mentioned demoralization a moment ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there's a really great book uh, by uh, an academic uh, called Demoralized that, go- that, that that like talks into the phenomenon of like teachers do not burn out, but they, they, they feel like they've been sort of like demoralized to the point where they can't do any good uh, in the job that they're doing. And part of that question, like like when you get shoved, when you have like a tumultuous situation and this sort of like these lines get crossed in a fast way where there's no sort of like gradual, um, there's no sort of like gradual uh, reassessing and redefining like what is and what isn't acceptable. When we have a COVID situation where all of a sudden they're asking us to do things that make us all feel like we're crazy if we accept that. <laughs> um, I think that, 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 that actually shows like, like, like what we're able to put up with and what we're able to organize against. And I think that's, um, I think that's a really important uh, thing to sort of at least flag here. Aaron, what do you think in terms of what you've seen uh, doing your work or, I mean, or, or anything else that you've seen in terms of opportunities. I don't mean to put you on the spot. Sorry. No, well, I mean, I think it's really interesting. Something Amory said was, you know, it's, you were like, oh, this is a, I'm a white collar worker. And I do think there is this weird situation when it comes specifically to fields that are dominated by women. So we ain't paid like it. Yeah. Teaching social work, nursing. Um, I'm sure there's others that I'm leaving out, but it's this idea that, okay, we're doing this because we need, and I know this is like totally very old fashioned, but this idea that like, okay, well, we're doing this because we, we need to find fulfillment um, while our husband works. There's that. Like, Are you talking about emotional labor? No, just like, I can't tell you how many people I know who 
did my master's degree program at, I went to Tulane. I got a master's in social work at Tulane, which consequently you need a master's degree to be a social worker. Mm -hmm. I need, need that to be known. Like it's this idea that like, oh, it's this calling or it's this thing that I do because I like love helping people. But like, also you need a master's degree. So like get that and have a lot of debt. <laughs> and like, cool. Great. Thank you. Um, but I went to school with many women who were just doing it to do it and like are now like married with kids. Like, again, I'm married. I don't have kids, but. Um, no, just like got it. Cause they were like, oh, this is like something I could do. Cause like, I'm a nice person. So like I should learn social work so I can like help people. And it's this weird, like it's this idea that we are somehow mark again. Thank you, Rebecca, for your term martyr. Like we're martyrs to the cause and we, um, we don't care about our own well being. And I think you see that a lot in families where moms like will sacrifice their own health and happiness for their families that ends up like then carrying over into the workplace. Like, I can't tell you how many bosses have gotten annoyed with me when I'm like, I'm not, excuse me, I'm not doing that. Um, and you know, like, or I'm not doing something unethical. I'm not working hours. I don't get paid. Um, if I'm not getting paid the amount of money, I think I should be getting paid. I'm taking a two hour lunch. I'm sorry. I'm doing it. There are and, unspoken expectations. Yeah. Or like this idea that like you, if you cared about your clients, you would not then care about yourself. And I know that that carries over to teachers. That is like the same thing. It's like, oh, you you can either care about yourself as a worker or you can care about your clients slash students. Yeah, it's put as a this or that sort ground. of situation. But in reality, the middle ground is I can't do I, I, the full disclosure, I just had to take a, like a four week break from work. Cause I was so burnt out. I was doing a bad job. Like I was not answering phone calls. I was like late with paperwork. I was just, I was really messing up my job. And it's because I work too much. I have two jobs. I like, cause you cannot work and pay your student loans on one social work salary. Like like I, I, I'm always reminded every time there's like some sort of like mass shooting and they're like, well, why didn't the social worker, like social workers catch this? And I'm like, oh, is it because you pay us $22 an hour? Yeah. Your job is the mass shooting stopper. Your job is the mass shooting stopper. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well like, yeah, I care so deeply about my clients. I love them. Like I want nothing but good things for them. I, I like honestly hate myself when I can't, perform the way I need to for them. Um, but the workforce is set up in a way that like, I can't, like, I can't advocate for myself and them at the same time, most of the time. And I know like, from what I understand from my friends who are teachers, and I have a lot of friends who are also school social workers. So like their jobs are not only dealing with like the emotional health of their students, like the, their cl clients who are students at the school, but also helping to deal with the emotional health of the teachers who are all insanely burnt out and like wanting to quit every other day and it's just you know it's not a good environment at all and i think we need to add in here because we're all talking about basically the deprofessionalization of of these work work environments that women tend to dominate it is not true that nurses salaries track with teachers and social workers you know like nurses now have outstripped us by a good like you know, like twice as much. So, and then also I want to say, so Rebecca and I discovered that we both grew up in Chicago, in the Chicago land area. And I grew up in, you know, what is at the time was not as wealthy, but is now a very wealthy suburb of Chicago. And, you know, this deprofessionalization, I mean, those teachers are white collar workers and they make six figures. The teachers who taught me made in the 80s when I went to high school what I make now in Louisiana. Jeez. They make twice what I make. So we, we, we made choices, right? So like Rebecca and I chose not to teach in the communities where we grew up, although CBS, you, you said you did teach in CBS, and CBS is a good good paying, which is strong union. But again, what we're Shout really talking Shout out to CTU, about, baby. What we're really talking about is being in a red state in a sit in an urban environment where the work is hardest 
And you would think that would be more remunerative and it's not because those are the throwaway people. And if you work with the throwaway people, you become the throwaway people. And that is the red state mentality. So even even in Chicago, where you know we know things are really really tough, if you're in uh, in, in an under-resourced community as a teacher or as a, a resident of that community, they ha actually have access to resources that like we could only dream of in New Orleans. I also need to throw in there the reason that nurses have way more salary than teachers and social workers is that they they unionized and they unionized hard and like power to them. They used to not get paid anything like nurses used to not be a well-respected um, profession. It was like, again, something that like women do. So they like while their kids are at school and now they are because like being a nurse is insanely difficult. Um, so like not saying they don't deserve it. But yeah, now they have a, a salary that tends to be more in line with like the work they actually do. And I mean, not to be petty about it, but you also see a lot more men deciding to become nurses now. So that's interesting. That's like an interesting thing. Yeah. I men, wonder why that I mean, is. Men brag about like, I've, I've literally heard the side of male nurses mouth like, yeah, I get paid six foods a year to wipe butts. You know, like I found the grift in the matrix. I'm like, all right, bro. But it shows you how it went from a thing to where like men wouldn't touch to now it's like, hey, I'm going to go get this money. Yeah. And it's like, I've also had to wipe butts, but that's like fully not in my job description. And it was either wipe a butt or like let someone who I like deeply care about my, like my client sit with stuff, like just be like sitting in their own filth. So it's like there, and I know this is the same for teachers. There are a lot of like very unspoken things and it's not even like stuff that you're, cause like if you were to go to your job and say like, Hey, this is unacceptable. I should not be expected to do this they will come out and tell you, well, we never said that you have to. <laughs> Being in a caring profession, your choice is either, I choose not to do this because I'm not getting paid for it. And I like, this is not my job description. Or you're sitting there watching another human suffer when you could fix it. And so like, generally we all went into this because we care about other people. So we're gonna do the thing to help the other person. But then it's also like frustrating because you're like, I cannot believe I just wiped someone's feces and I'm like not getting paid to white people's species, but you like, you do it because you care about the person. It's just, it's a very, it's like a frustrating situation. Rebecca. <laughs> I, I'm not, uh, I was thinking of, uh, I used to teach first grade and I, I had a brilliant boy that I had to help um, with poop in his pants and it was, one Poor of the little best guy. stories of my life. So I was chuckling to myself about that because he had these beautiful big eyes. Um, he's the cutest boy ever. But yeah, I didn't sign up to do that. Uh, and you know what? We do do it. And because it's the right thing to do and we're good people. We're more, more, our moral compasses are facing the right direction. I mean, we just are. We are good people. We are community-based. We are community-minded. We are caretakers. But we will push back when... <laughs> we are asked to do some ridiculous things. And so that is that is where we're at now. And it's, you know, being from Chicago and, and being a CTU member back in 2012, I remember just thinking like, man, I'm not gonna make it 10 years in this gig. I'm not gonna make it. And I quit, I quit in 2015, I did. I got pregnant with my first daughter and I said, I'm not doing this. My anxiety and panic attacks were at an all time high. You cannot ask me to do another thing on my prep time. You cannot ask me to put up a data wall. I am done shaming people for your data points that just generate funding. I am done. And so I quit. Uh, but, you know, after being on strike with CTU in 2012, I, I, I had an awakening, really. And I had a really amazing site rep in my building that um, she's my union mama. She taught, she taught me everything I know. And it was basically, look. You have a union and guess what? You're not working after the contract. We couldn't even, our principal wouldn't even send us emails after hours. Otherwise, Stephanie Collins would be knocking on her door. Define these the things, day. define these things, right? Correct. And we would have our little contract book out at all times. And that's when I realized that I needed the union really. And like, I, I started teaching back in 2004 and this is my very first, um, no, so I started in 2004, but 2005 was when I had my first dose 
of take it and shut up. And it is really what drove me to be who I am today, honestly. And I was brought into a situation, brand new grad, right? I did my work. I was going to be a multicultural urban educator, you know, in Chicago. That was like bells and whistles to me. Like, I'm going to do the work in the community. I'm going to do this. Right. And I got shit on like a mother, like just terrible, just horrible to the point where I was brought in as a temporary assigned teacher. Right. This is the abuse that we take. I'm going to tell you the story right now. I was brought in as a TAT, a temporary assigned teacher to fill in for somebody who had a medical leave, right? I got my foot in the door in a really good school in Wicker Park, which is like one of my favorite neighborhoods. And I was I was like, yes, this is, this is great. And I got there and he paid me, my principal somehow screwed up the paperwork and put me under a bucket number where I would only get paid as a sub and not an actual teacher's salary. And so by the time I had realized what happened, right? I'm looking at pay stubs going, this doesn't make sense. I'm new to the job, I haven't really, this is like my first professional job my whole life, right? Like I'm not savvy enough to know, but I knew mm -hmm. something was wrong. And so I went to the union and I said, I don't think this is right. Like, can you help me understand what a TAT is? She got out her little contract booklet on page, blah, blah, blah. She's like, here's what it is. And I was like, so this is what my paycheck says. And she helped me. And so at God that bless moment, her. Said, God bless her. Dude. This is what happened. And this is why I'm literally sitting here right now today. Without her, I wouldn't be here. She looked at me and she, she said, we gonna fix this, right? She's actually the, like on the steering committee of the Black Caucus and she does not mess around. She has power what in her What a badass. Voice. Badass. And she said, no, no, honey, you come with me. I said, okay. So we strategically set up meeting with all the other veteran black teachers in the building and we we, we would huddle outside of his office and I would show her the paperwork, right? And we'd be talking and talking. And she's like, you just got to see him talking. He needs to see you and I talking. Because at that moment, I realized she wasn't going to let him play me. She wasn't going to let him take advantage of me because she had seen it for her 25 years already in her life that as caretakers, we are abused over and over and over again because we're just going to do it because I needed a job. I needed a salary and I was young and untenured and he could just take advantage of me. Mm -hmm. And after that, we started saying the word grievance a couple times here and there. And boy, did he change his tune and boy, did he fix that situation. And I ended up getting $10,000 back in my paycheck because I got retroactive pay for being correct the whole time. And without her and, and, and realizing that abuse and she would be there over and over and saying, you don't email us on Sundays. You don't email us on any any time after hours. Please. That's it. No after hours. You pay us. You don't email us after hours. Nobody's going to respond to you. So don't even try it. So I really learned through that experience. And thank God I ended up in that building with her as my rep that we don't have to take it. We have rights Yeah. and we have people who advocate. And if you don't, then put the boots on and do it yourself. You know, that speaks to not even necessarily just like the question of organizing, like on the front end, that is the sort of like back end wages of organizing and developing and creating structures by which we have protections that workers protect themselves. Not that the HR department in your school system will protect you or like deal with you in some kind of like divine to be fair way or whatever the hell that never trust the boss folks. That's like one of the like baseline yeah, things. Literally never trust HR. <laughs> HR is not on your side. HR is not not your friend hr they may be really nice they might be fun at happy hours they're not they're not there for you but you create the situation where you you have these structures where you can actually have grounds to fight for and get people the paid for the work that they're freaking doing right i mean it's, I don't know. it's like the, the, this is the this is the good stuff right here well yeah i mean that's one of the things like how many times do we have to hear about how much money that um, looters like cost Target or that shop? Like the reason why all these things are happening at Walmart because oh god, shoplifters they just spend so much money. And I'm like, yeah, how much wage theft? Like, I'm like, I've had wage theft. I've I don't know a single person who hasn't had like some wage theft occur. But like also Rebecca, you the only wage theft goes one way. 
Oh God. Yeah. Pay me for my overtime. Thanks. Um, but one of the things that you brought up, like when you first were you know, talking is the idea that you were going to be this multicultural teacher. And I do think there's this like, you know, that's a buzzword. It's like in, vampire glamour, isn't it? Well, it's like a, it's like a liberal circle buzzword is, oh, we need more black man teachers. We need more teachers of color. We need our teachers to reflect the student body, which is a hundred percent true. That's not like an un, untrue thing. But then the idea is like, they're not doing any of the things to actually allow those teachers to work. So I, again, and I'm, I'm not, I'm speaking from a social work background, but like to be, to get your master's in social work, you have to go to school and you have to do an unpaid field placement. So you have to, so like, I was extremely lucky. I was able to take out some loans and then my, my family paid for the rest. And I am like extraordinarily lucky about that. So what are the, like, what are the people who don't have the resources I have supposed to do? Are they supposed to have a full course load, a full field placement and a job on top of that for a job that's going to pay them again, $21 and 50 cents an hour when they get out? Like it's not feasible for most people. And so people hem and haw about this, like, oh, white lady with a savior complex swooping into to urban areas to fix things. And it's like, but nobody else can afford to work at these jobs because like, don't, don't get it twisted. You need to have higher education to be a teacher, a nurse, a social worker, any of these caring positions, like you need at least a bachelor's degree, more than likely you'll need a master's degree. In some cases, like school psychologists, like they need a doctorate. So it's like, who are you going to have do these jobs if you're making it so the barrier to entry is so high? So it's like, oh, you can look woke because you're you're so worried about the optics of this and you're so worried about who's coming in, but you're not actually willing to do any of the things it would take to actually make it so that people who look like the community can get those jobs. Right. And this is where like, this is always the part of the conversation we're having where I'm like, okay, now what do we do? So now what do we do? You know, I agree with what Rebecca said, which is, you know, like we got to put on the boots and do it. No one's coming to save us. You know, if we're lucky enough to have the building rep or site rep that you're describing Rebecca, like great. But like, and for most of us now we're at the point where we're like, well, we need to be that for someone else. Yep. And I try to be that for other teachers. But like when we're talking about real change, we're talking about structure. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, one of the things that kept coming up for me in this conversation as I sit and mull over this question of like, what does it mean to be a teacher and also a worker in honor of Labor Day tomorrow is this idea of like Chicago at one time had this radical experiment with community controlled schools. And one of the things that I think is coming is going to be a massive bifurcation, depending a lot about, about the national election in, in November, but with or without that election, wherever way it goes, we're gonna see this pandemic usher in a huge, huge neoliberal grab for teaching jobs. And they're gonna keep pushing back because Me Too and BLM have the neoliberals on their heels running scared because the way they have set this up, exactly what Aaron is talking about, the structures they've created to deprofessionalize any kind of helping profession, to, I wanna put librarians in there with you, Aaron, you know, people with three years, it takes to get a master's degree with a library certification, like starting salary, $29,000 a year, if you're lucky. If you're lucky to get it, $17 an hour if you're an adjunct librarian or, you know, a clerk librarian, whatever you get. The, the structures are what have to change. And what I think is the only answer is teacher run schools. And I think what we're gonna see with this pandemic and the virtual learning is that a ton and tons and tons of jobs are gonna be sacrificed because they're gonna realize they got people used to this virtual thing. We can- They have people on Fox News saying right now, like you just get rid of all of the teachers and just put PBS and make be that be the teachers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, and all this talk about like a TV show for t instead of teaching. I mean, like, you know, Sesame Street's been on since the year I was born. Sesame and, Street's uh, good, by the way. I'm not, a, we're not anti Sesame Street here, I don't think. Well, I, I used to Sesame work Street. for PBS Education. They're actually really good. I love um, Sesame Street. They wouldn't want to replace it. No. If it worked, every child in America could read. And that is not what happens. You can't learn to read from teaching, from, from 
looking at a screen. It doesn't work that way. But we're going to see this. We're going to see prepackaged virtual learning. We're going to see a huge neoliberal takeover of education in the virtual arena. We're going to see the decimation of the profession. If the, the pandemic keeps rolling, and I mean, we all want to be safe and we all want to be at home. But let me tell you, if this pandemic keeps running and we are all back at home soon enough, which I predict will be the case, they are going to use this the same way they used Hurricane Katrina, the microcosm. This is the macrocosm now of the global crisis. But Katrina was the shock doctrine poster child. And we were, I lived through it. I lost my job during it. I saw the whole thing unfold. And I can tell you, it's about to happen on a global scale. That's my prediction. I hope I'm wrong. I never bet against you know, teachers. I never get a bet against children. I want to be wrong here. But we've got to be ready. And we've got to be starting to say, like, all right, Fox News is going to run their own education, neoliberal virtual education, where they teach people to kiss the flag every day. We're going to be over here with our own schools. That sounds like a terrible show. You know they're going to do it. If they get half the chance, they would do it. So what are we going to have to offer people? And what are we going to have to offer the the communities we already serve? What are we going to say and stand up and say, Me Too and BLM, we're not going away. We're not going to let you take what we have. We're not giving it up without a fight. We're going to keep working for worker justice. We're going to keep working for Black Lives Matter. We're going to keep working for Me Too. And we're going to make a more just society because we're going to be organized and we're going to not accept what is coming, which is going to be shock doctrine everywhere you turn. You are listening to WHIV LP New Orleans 102.3. This is Good Morning Comrade, goodmorningcomrade.com. You can get more uh, information at uh, slash listen. Uh, so in terms of uh, what we're looking at in terms of action steps to um, sort of get educators you know, working on the uh, s- local, the state, and the national level. Um, I know myself and Anne-Marie have been working together in uh, Louisiana Educators United to uh, build up some, some uh, you know, organizing capacity in our state. And I've also been working with uh, Rebecca for a little while uh, on the, you know, non-state level and a little bit more broad level. Um, I guess to... to, to talk to both of y'all about some of the objectives and some of the ways to get plugged in if you're an educator or uh, what are some of the projects that we can sort of see happening uh, in terms of National Educators United, Louisiana Educators United, uh, your unions, whatever. What kind of organizing is happening around this, uh, the education work right now? Um, so from a national educators united perspective we um you know just continue to do our work with committees so can you uh, just, is, i'm sorry really quick. can you just define what what is edu- uh, national educators united so national educators united is basically uh, a grassroots group of us grassroots organization that runs successful educator united groups in our state so for example educa- uh, arizona educators united New Jersey 21 United, Virginia Educators United. There's a group of us that got together over a year ago and started having discussions of how do we sort of knit our work together? How do we work towards a national strategy to continue to uplift the Red for Ed movement? And what's missing from the movement that we all need, really? And we came up with the idea of like education pieces not just political education, but organizing education and building, you know, toolkits and sharing them and saying, okay, this is what New Jersey did. This is what Arizona did. This is what California did. Okay. If you need these tools and resources, here you go. And so, for example, yesterday we held a town hall on HVAC systems and ventilation and talked about how important this era, fresh air is in a pandemic when the you know contagion is uh, aerosolized right so we brought in some industry experts we tried to really bring in education pieces. amazing amazing work thank you and we brought in a budget expert right one of our researchers actually just wrote a, a policy memo for me nepc and so our our austerity committee does budget town halls where we put on budget information so people don't have to really you know spend 12 to 20 days researching this stuff to understand how is this going to impact me and my school 
So we put on education pieces. And so for us, like New Jersey came out with, you know, pushing back against ventilation. You saw New York push back against ventilation and asking for building inspections. And so Arizona with that kind of thing. So for me, what I see right now is a common theme for all of us. It's breathing COVID safe air, right? That's one thing that can knit us all together. And so we have conversations in our group that we bring back to our own states and we organize using the tools that we all build together. But then I also work on the coalition to demand safe schools, which is the journey for justice, the UTLA, the CTU kind of really progressive unions in the nation who have come together way back in April mm-hmm. to strategize for the very first time an actual national strategy. And so the next day of action, like we had on August 3rd is going to be September 30th. And so right now, Wherever you are right now, you have to consider how do I build my base? How do we build structures? How do we plug people in who are like unorganized and have no space to go to? Like we have low union density, only one third of the members, you know, one third of the teaching force are member paying dues. So you have to create spaces and you have to open spaces to allow people to come into, do some education and see if you can empower people to actually rise up and organize. And that's what we've been doing in National Educators United. That's what we've been doing in Arizona Educators United. And it has brought organic leaders out. And so that's where I'm at. Aaron, do you mind if I go on this? I am just, you know, so floored by the conversation that just totally left out AFT and NEA. And, you know, Who? it's just, yeah, thank you. It's just absolutely what we need is a revolution in the way we do unions. And the old hidebound, corrupt, yes, I said it, corrupt, complacent, and complicitous teachers' unions got to go. Aaron said it earlier, the nurses powered up. We're going to have to be in the streets. I don't see any other way. I'm all for the education piece. I am all for wearing the same colored t-shirts, but people, that is not, in my opinion, a job action. Wearing the same colored t-shirts on a day is just not, in, it's not enough. It's not doing anything. It's just absolutely, and I'm gonna be really frank too, because Jeff's already heard me say it, it, panel discussions on Facebook are not enough. We can do those things. They do elevate the conversation. They bring some people in that were maybe timidly watching from the sidelines and wishing they knew how to get involved. Yes to all of that. But it is not the same. We have to be, we have to take a page from BLM. We have to take a page from Me Too. We have to wreck people's careers who are standing in our way. We have to call for justice publicly and out people who are doing things that are unjust. And then we have to be in the streets. And we have you, and you know, wait, my wait. friend Larissa Lewis said, if you feel like effing some stuff up, we might have to F some stuff up. Because apparently that's the only thing people understand. You know, it's also funny too. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. We, uh, sorry, I didn't interrupt. But it, I, it, something that comes to mind for me, and this might be like my own free association brain kind of working on its own. So, so like, Shoot me down if this is dumb. But like I was sort of thinking about the way that that um, Ed Markey election just happened in, um, in in Massachusetts. So for people who don't know, he was a sort of middle of the road kind of a post um, really a long time. Uh, Ed Markey was a long time like sort of left of the sort of neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party guy uh who suddenly was running for senate and sort of embraced a lot of these ideas like medicare for all and the green new deal uh and essentially he was he was sort of like propelled to uh, an election win against a kennedy in massachusetts last week and he won uh and so as a part of that like a lot of people who agree with what we're saying and a lot of these sort of like justice oriented approaches like he owes a debt to those kind of folks uh is that is that i I kind of associate in in the sense that like we can make it rewarding to get people who are in positions of power to do the right thing and to do good things Uh, is that a part of this as well or is that like is that just me being like jeff 
I mean, I, I think it's definitely a part of it. Like, and number one, let's not pretend that Ed Markey's amazing. No, he's not. He sucks. My father told me you have to, don't beg for your rights. You gotta walk back, take them. I'm like, excuse me. That's amazing. Like we we're we stand, but <laughs> the problem is, is there's this narrative that especially with the helping professions and especially teachers that teachers rights are in direct opposition to parents and students rights. It's teachers are striking hundred percent direct opposition to what parents and students need. And in reality, teachers are never striking for things that don't also benefit students and then therefore benefit parents. And so I think what we have is a messaging problem. It's, it's, we've, I don't want to say we, I mean, it's just that union, there's been a lot of union breaking. There's been, you know, a lot of like, not, not neoliberal, just like straight up conservative. Like I blame Mm -hmm. Reagan. I blame Reagan's astronomer or astrologer, excuse me. That's who I blame for. You blaming the stars? You're blaming the stars? Uh, you, you know, I mean, I, this is like a super aside, but Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan had like a personal astrologer and they didn't make decisions without like consulting with the astrologer. <laughs> so every time I have to go through TSA, I just, and it's like annoying, I just like blame the Reagan's astrologer. <laughs> but anyway, um, no, it's like this thing. It's like we are not like, again, it's it's the thing that like the caring professions straddle this weird line of like, oh, we're like white collar when it comes to like dealing with parents because like, oh, we're just like fancy people who like want our, want what we want and we don't care about the kids and we don't care about the clients. But then when it comes to like kind of the world in general, it's like just take what you get. You're a worker. And it's like, no, I don't like either of those options. So we just, we need to be better. Like if you're listening to this and you're a parent, like your teacher, like your kid's teacher going on strike is a good thing and support them. And I think we did see a lot of that in Chicago. Um, and we need to see more of it. And, 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 and Rebecca can probably speak to this in her own experience in Arizona. Yes. Well, yes, I can. Uh, I don't think you get 75,000 people in the street unless you got your parents with you. So we definitely spent a whole month, one month, four weeks of our eight-week organizing blitz. Uh, We called it Community Solidarity Month. Uh, Parents, businesses, you name it. We tried to bring them in and do walk-ins with us. And you know what I mean? And we had it. We informational picket them. We had conversations. Sometimes walk-ins turned into like these cute parties with like coffee and donuts and, you know, just real sort of, um, you're talking to people, you're just talking to people. You're just talking talking to to folks. Like once they see a bunch of red shirts together, like, what are you guys doing? You're like, Oh, great. Come on. I'll tell you. Like, that's how we invite parents into the world. I love it. Yeah. And so, you know, we did three weeks of that. Um, because everybody really wanted to strike, but it's like, yo, you can't just go from zero to 90. You really have to incrementally build and turn up the heat. Like that's organizing 101. And so I had to calm people down and say, hey, you know, when we were on strike in Chicago, we did these things called walk-ins. Let me show you how this works. West Virginia also did walk-ins, right? And so education is always part of what we do. You cannot organize without the education piece and teaching somebody an organizing strategy like a walk-in and why it's important took three weeks. They didn't get it right? Week one, they were like, okay, week two, better. And by week three, we had over 110,000 people clock in attendance at our walk-ins in over 1,200 schools. Amazing. Just over 1,000. We had 1,200 schools organized, but we had just over 1,100 that actually held walk-ins on the third week. Amazing. Congratulations on that. That's that's huge. It's everything. And that's how West Virginia did it as well. You yep. can't, and again, it how I mean, West Virginia at least had that legacy of unionism, and their, you know, their parents and their grandparents had it struck. And you know what? They got they got blood they got blood thrown blood flowing through their veins, and they breathe oxygen just like we do, you know. Right, and so that was powerful. But what we know is where we talk about air quality. We breathe the same air as yeah. your children, and in this case, with this particular example. You, what, what happens to us happens to your kids. If we have this thing, your kids have this thing. If your kids have this thing, 
you have this thing. Yep. And there's no way, and this is such a powerful thing, and this is a powerful message that we need, especially in our under-resourced schools, because we know our parents are workers in our under-resourced communities. Our parents understand very well that the garbage they're throwing on us is the same garbage their children have to eat. And, and if we can make the schools a healthy, sane, safe place for teachers, it will be a healthy, safe, and sane place for children. And that has got to be the message for the parents. But at the same time, if the parents aren't with us, too bad. I mean, build yeah. capacity, absolutely. Educate, absolutely. But there's also going to come a point, I believe sooner rather than later, where we're going to be fighting for something really big. And if the parents aren't with us... We need, we need to get them on our side. We can get them on our side. Yeah. I truly believe that. But I also don't think it is a deal breaker what parents, I mean, the, the, the whole the whole thing, and you know, people talking about Reagan, it's like, I actually lived through Reagan. I can tell you this was a whole country before Reagan. You don't <laughs> get Reagan if this wasn't for the Eisenhower years and, you know, frying the Rosenbergs and all the dirty shit that's been done to women and black people and Hispanic people in this country for millennia. So, you know, I, I can't say Reagan, <laughs> Reagan is a disgusting human being and he laid a lot of foundation for where we are now. But if we as workers want to change the way our schools are, we're really talking about a whole different way of looking at poor people. And we have to build from there because really, you know, we aren't, we don't have solidarity with the people working in the community where I grew up mm -hmm. and make a six figure salary. Their police are not their problem. Their schools are not in crisis. Their housing is not in crisis. They're living in a different America. Mm -hmm. And so we have to take the America we're living in and take it to a place where we can say we want dignity and respect like the people who live in places where they already have it. Yeah, it's only they're in a different class than we are. It's a class issue. Yeah. So anyway, we do have to wrap it up, but I do want to get like one final word from all of you. Uh, so we can just, uh, Anne-Marie, uh, if you want to have anything to say on the way out, um, where can we find more information about Louisiana Educators United? When do we... Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, message of uh, great solidarity and great encouragement for all the JBS teachers and all the Louisiana teachers right now who are, are you know, really facing down some really serious and significant issues. So we are here for you. Um, I want to say thank you to Jeff Berwa for like totally dragging me, kicking and screaming into this fight. It wasn't a fight I wanted to have. I'm very stubborn. He's very stubborn. He's very <laughs> persuasive. And, you know, I just want to like put on praise. But this is great. And I'm, I'm really glad to be in this with him and with many of the people we've been organizing with in LEU. And I want all the teachers who happen to tune into this to know, like, we are going to continue standing up and we need you with us. You can find us on Facebook in the Louisiana Educators United. We have a page and a group. The page is merely for announcements and events. You in the pay, group is more interactive and you can actually post and share on that. So please join the group you have to ask to join. And I believe also the page. I don't know, but we no, want you can to like the page. Up. You can just like the page. You can just like the page. Thank you, Jeff. But we're in we're also, you know, in all kinds of places and, you know, we're at the board meetings and we're going to be doing more direct action. So um, it was really nice meeting Scott, Rebecca and Aaron. And great to share this time with you all. Sure. Uh, Rebecca, where can we find more information about uh, what you're doing and also about uh, National Educators United? So the three spaces I occupy, um, if you ever want to come into Arizona Educators United, um, you again have to join. It's a Facebook group. Um, National Educators United is a private group or sorry, public group. I have too many groups. Way too <laughs> That's many. one of the problems. Um, <laughs> No. <laughs> um, National Education United is a public group. That's where you're going to find all of the events, town halls. Uh, but we do have a website, nationaleducatorsunited.org, where there's a button for committees and resources. So if you want to dig in and look for organizing tools, union resolutions, toolkits, educational materials, the presentations we've put on, it's all there. It's all public-facing Google folders. Um, so you're welcome to go there. And then I uh, also say go to demandsafeschools.org to catch up on the coalition mm -hmm. to demand safe schools. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah that, that, that's going to be uh, it for today. Uh, you can listen. I want to say this has been very enjoyable having other women on the podcast. And I feel like 
we should do this more. Are you tired of this? Are you tired of this being a boys' show? Is that what you're saying, Aaron? I'm just saying. Look, just it's not my fault that we ran off Aaron. Uh, that we ran off Michelle and Sophie. It's That's not my fault. Rude. I didn't. That do That is so rude. We don't even look alike. That is extraordinarily rude. I mean, that's fine by me. Like, the it's more all getting cut out, by the way. The more people that aren't me on the show is fine. I'll just uh, dip into the GMC war chest and uh, go to Barbados or something. That's fair. I'm, I'm here for that. Go to Big St. James. Go to Big St. Yeah, James. Go. Big St. James. Big St. James. Oh, my God. See, this is why. They're kicked out. You guys should just join us for the rest of the time. Yeah. I'm off the show. Oh, again. my God. So, so, so thank you so much, Rebecca. Like... You know how much I respect you and love you. You are like one of the greatest people that I that I know. And Anne Marie, wow. same thing. Like y'all are like such amazing, fantastic, wonderful people, and just like all the love to both of y'all. Uh, thank y'all for coming on the show. I'm like honored to be with y'all right now. Me and Jeff are brothers, and he never talks to me like that. <laughs> I don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you can listen to Good Morning Comrade on goodmorningcomrade.com. Uh, you can listen to us on Good Morning Comrade, uh, whivfm.org slash listen. Thanks, everybody. Love you. Bye.